You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Brad Talley. I surely hope I just turned the mic on. Other, if, if not, then people have had me in their ears all uh, morning. I've had some stuff going on. I'll tell you about it in just a moment. Uh, my name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace. If you're here for the first time, we give you a special welcome. But every single one of you, it's good to be here in the house of the Lord with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a sad day for us uh, in many ways because Neil and Myra Manning are going to be leaving us uh, for a couple of years. Uh, they have an opportunity to be in Hawaii for a couple of years. You know, back in my day... Uh, anywhere you told the Lord you didn't want to go, that's where he'd send you. That's the way people thought about God's will. So Neil's been saying forever, Lord, anywhere but Hawaii. And so, you know, I, I guess the Lord is teaching him a lesson. He's just going to send him out there. Um, but Neil is one of our elders. And I mentioned this recently, I think. But we have so many people that come through because of the triangle, the transient nature of the triangle. And, and then Campbell University at, People are constantly coming and going, and that's a, that's a privilege to get to know so many people, but it's also heartbreak when they leave. And we can't mention everyone. If we did, surely we'd miss some people, and that would be hurtful. But with an elder, we think this is a special occasion. Where are Neil and Myra? I saw them at the back. Where are they? You guys stand up if you would. I'm sorry, Myra, if you, you do that. Um, but uh, these guys with Kara's with them, and the boys are in the back. But um, we just want to pray for them. Myra uh, has eczema. Some of you have eczema. Some in my family have it. It's really tough. But it just clears up in Hawaii. So this is going to be a, a, a beautiful respite for them. But they will be back. For whatever reason, that's the case. Uh, I imagine a lot of things clear up in Hawaii, right? Neil's appropriately attired. But we want to pray for you guys. Uh, Bert Wallace, the chairman of Aeolus, is gonna is gonna pray for, for them as as they go. And Neil, you leave what, Tuesday or Wednesday? Tuesday. Tuesday. Ooh, I don't like that, so let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we want to just lift up our brother and sister and their, their children uh, to you today. We thank you for Neil and Myra and all that they mean to our body. Um, we just lift them up to you. We pray for traveling mercies for them. We pray for the time that they're going to be apart for a few weeks um, and that you would just shepherd Myra and the children as they join Neil in a few weeks. Um, we pray for uh, a good time for them, a, a valuable time for their family and for your kingdom as they go out, in a sense, from this body and into your larger kingdom. Um, we just pray that you would bless their time, uh, that they're apart from us, give them good experiences and, and safety and health, and we just pray for them as they go out from us that you would protect them, that you would bring them back safely to us when it is your will to do so. Um, and we, we love them, and we just pray that our love would go with them, uh, that they would be aware of our love for them, of your love for them, and that you would just bless and keep them in all that they do. Thank you, and we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And I'll just put this up here. Um, Neil uh, does an enormous amount of research for us. 
uh, on on special topics and also uh, took he and Scott Culbreth took the lead on some difficult times for us in recent days. We, it's going to be a hold, but Neil will continue to do research while he is in in um, Hawaii. So I should say, if you have a question about anything, you know, theological, historical, whatever, direct them to Neil. Uh, because, and just cut out the middle man, you know, you don't have to come through me. And Myra serves us so beautifully and so well. And that's the case with so many people who leave. But again, these guys are a special part of the leadership here at Grace, and we pray for them. You know, every Sunday morning, I, I, I write out my sermons word for word. I don't preach them word for word, although if you have, had a script, you would be pretty surprised at how close it is. And then I go off, you know, on tangents and topics and all, of all kinds. Um, and usually it works out. Occasionally it doesn't, but when I go off script. But um, every Sunday morning, I'm reading through just before I get ready, one last time. And I'm always embarrassed with uh, the numbers of things. I'm like, how could I, have, how was I going to say that? I mean, not, it's not the content, it's just the way I worded it. And so I say it a lot better if I, if I write it out and I restructure uh, some of the sentences. It just flows a lot better. And so this morning I was about one page from the end and I get a text from my daughter, Autumn, saying Brian is having a heart attack. Her husband, her 36-year-old husband. And um, I immediately, of course, uh, reacted calmly and said, Brian's having a heart attack! <laughs> to, to Allison. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I can't believe it. So I called, and, you know, he had these awful pains last night, and they thought it was, were afraid it was pneumonia, went to the hospital. And in the end, I, I've been communicating back and forth. If it weren't so last minute, someone else would be doing this this morning. But in, in the end, it, it, it could be pericarditis, where it's inflammation and fluid around the heart. Now, I don't know. Some of you medically-minded people might be able to tell me later except I'm leaving as soon as I finish preaching um, it's inflammation of the heart fluid around the heart and it shows up on the EKG like a heart attack so it showed as a heart attack and we'll see uh, he's stable and expecting to be released tomorrow uh, but like I say I was a good page and a half away from the end so I had this sermon hopefully will start well I don't know how it's going to end you know <laughs> don't know if it's going to land like it ought to land uh, because I haven't looked at that last part but I want to start this way and I know you will be praying for Brian and Autumn um, I want to start by asking you, you this question it's a question look I this used to be a really popular question I don't think I hear too many people ask it now but People used to ask it all the time. If you were convicted or if you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's a good question, isn't it? If you were charged with being a Christian and they took you to court and witnesses were going to get up and testify, would there be enough evidence in your life to be convicted? I mean, would witnesses say, oh yeah, no doubt, she's a follower of Jesus, or would they say, him? You're kidding, right? You're kidding. You're asking this question. Is this person a Christian? 
I suppose the question about whether a person lives as a Christian should live has to be addressed only after you understand what does a Christian look like. How is a Christian expected to live? I mean, there are a lot of possible answers uh, to that question, but I think most of us would agree that a believer is aware, a true believer is aware that he has been saved by grace. And so he's humble. She has a spirit of gratitude, knowing how good God is, and not only <clears throat> the beautiful hope of eternal life, but, 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 but the eternity in, in hell apart from God from which He has saved her. Furthermore, a Christian is gospel-centered, extending grace to others because <clears throat> he knows how very much he has been forgiven. That's what the world thinks of when they think of a Christian, right? Often that is not the case at all. I mean, all too often they may think of someone who is self-righteous and arrogant and mean-spirited. And if that's their perception when a believer is trying to, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, I don't want to hear any. I'm not buying that. Look, I know how you Christians are, so I don't want to hear it. Just leave me alone. It's too bad if that's their perception. And it's far worse if their perception about a particular group of people is the way it really truly is. These people who call themselves Christian act this way. As we'll see this morning, uh, many perceptions about Christians are unfair. But it's our privilege to work at changing those perceptions. And oftentimes... That's more passive than it is active, as odd as that may sound. Uh, I, I'll explain that later. It, it, it can be quite refreshing for an unbeliever to encounter a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Someone follows Christ and, 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 and the sense of, of the Lord being in the presence can be almost overwhelming for an unbeliever in a good kind of way. So refreshing, in fact, that the question is likely to be asked, what is it that makes you so different? Why are you the way you are and I'm the way I am? If you exude the fragrance of Christ... It's possible you're going to have many opportunities to, to share Jesus with others. Then what? What if someone says, tell me what's different about you? Well, next week we're going to talk about the basics of a gospel presentation. I don't know how many weeks we'll be on that, but we'll, we'll just talk about what is it you say when you have the opportunity to share Christ. And if you're, I know some of you are going to be gone and you may think, I, I don't know, I just... There is the slight possibility that you say, oh man, I would really like to hear that. It's online, the, 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 the manuscript's online, and you'll be able to access it later. Today, though, we're going to talk about the believer's posture for outreach, which creates opportunities to share the gospel. The text today is 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 17. And for just a skosh of context, don't you like that word, skosh? Just a skosh of context. It'll be helpful to know that Peter was writing to churches scattered around Asia Minor, which was modern-day Turkey. Turkey's a big country. Every time I, 
I, I look at the ancient map and I look at the modern map. I'm surprised at how large Turkey is. So all these churches were in modern day Turkey. And the best guess on a date for the book of 1 Peter is written somewhere around A.D. 62 and 63. And what does that matter? Well, it's a big deal because it was somewhere around A.D. 65, 66. I don't remember exactly which. I think it is narrowed down to one of those two years when the great fire in Rome happened. And then right afterwards, Nero started his empire-wide, especially city-wide, persecution of Christians. He had to have someone to blame, and so he was able to <coughs> blame them. And, and full-blown persecution was about to erupt. And it wasn't out in the open, but it was, it, it was building. The, the animosity toward Christians was building. And there were a lot of people who were, who, who were um, vilified and, and, and mocked because of their beliefs. And they lost jobs and they were shunned and not allowed into certain neighborhoods. If you're a Christian, don't bring that mess here. And even within their own families, they were often ostracized. So in such a setting, you would expect Peter's letter to be grim and serious, but it overflowed with joy, calling for purity, a pure life, and, and, and rejoicing in, in, in the middle of all of these trials. The Holy Spirit, through, through Peter, called for godliness and a humility that would be not only attractive, but downright contagious. And so now that we have a wee bit of context, let's go to the word. 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 17. If you would please stand as the word of God is read. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on, con on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. Bless, you were called to this that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life, Psalm 34, he's quoting, and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, and a lot of them were suffering because of their goodness, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Hope in the New Testament, almost always associated with eternity, eternal life because of Christ. It's eschatological or just thinking about the end times. It's always, it's not hope in this life, it's hope in the next. So let's read it again. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet 
do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you were slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's either now or at the end. Probably again, it's eschatological talking about the day will come where they will be ashamed for what they have done to believers. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Father, none of us wants to suffer. But if we do suffer, far better that we be in your will. Whatever that means, whether we suffer physically, but especially according to this context, if we suffer, if we lose jobs, if, if we're uh, made fun of, if we're despised because of our belief in Christ, far better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts this morning and draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. At the school where my wife, Allison, who, by the way, went to be with Autumn and Brian, but at the school where Allison teaches, which is Trinity Academy of Raleigh, they're often told, you know, as teachers... You need to understand this. Parents and students may not remember what you say. They may not remember what you do. But they will remember how you make them feel. That's important, isn't it? Think about it. They, they might not remember what you say. They might not remember what you do. But they will remember how you make them feel. Now, Trinity Academy is a classical training, classical Christian education uh, system and I, it's, it is extremely impressive. If you were to go there, you would be wowed with the way that they prepare students to think critically. Something that hardly any young people are being taught to do today. Please, those of you under 20, 25, learn to think critically. Don't just accept what other people say, test it. Understand something about history. Life goes back further than from the time you were born. It, it, it goes way back. And they teach them to think critically at Trinity. And, and they teach them how to stand for their faith and how to articulate their faith and to embrace their faith in, in, in the face of attacks that are inevitable when they go to school. Most of them go to secular schools. And so they want them to be prepared. So education is highly valued. The academic side of school is highly valued at Trinity. But in the same way that Jamie Smith is emphasizing the visceral side of holiness in books such as You Love What You Are, as in, as in you love what you worship more so than you, or, or you are what you love, I'm sorry. You are what you love. You are what you worship as opposed to you are what you think. We've always had this idea, we are who we think. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, Proverbs says. So there's, understand, I understand the sentiment behind that. You are what you think. What you think about, that's what you are. But even goes, Jamie Smith, J, J, James K.A. Smith is going further and saying that, that look, our hearts worship 
something, whatever it is that you think about most of the time, whatever it is that you pour your resources into, your time, your money, your efforts, that's what you worship. And so when we worship the Lord with our hearts, it comes across in the ways that we interact with other people. And it's not just a, an intellectual exercise to share the gospel with someone. We're sharing our very lives. We're sharing ourselves. And we're sharing Jesus Christ. And it comes across when we follow the Lord's plan for us to live amongst the body and in the world. So, the Apostle Peter understood this when he wrote to his friends in the first century. And since Scripture is eternal, it speaks to us in our setting just as powerfully as it spoke to the believers of the first century. When we live gospel-saturated lives, people will begin to take notice. Our text begins with an acknowledgement of the winsome appeal of humility. How do you know when you're humble? Well, you never do, do you, really? I mean, look, the minute you achieve humility, you've lost it. When you're aware of it, when you're like, oh, I think I'm humble. No, you're not. Uh, well, let me just put it this way. You were humble, you know, for just a brief moment before you thought about it, before you realized it. Uh, it, it humility is, a, it, it, it is difficult because pride is such a tricky thing. It often seeks to clothe itself in humility. Pride does. But it's rarely successful in deceiving others. Although it often deceives the one wearing the clothes. I put these clothes on. I'm humble. Everybody else is like, uh, no, you're not. Uh, okay, it's like the emperor's clothes. That kind of clothes, you know. You're not who you think you are. When you think you're humble. And I see, it's just, this is frustrating at my age. I, one of these brilliant, in, in humility I say this, a brilliant thought flashed through my mind and now it's gone. So I have to stick with the script. <laughs> and some say, whew. Uh, in 1 Peter 3, 8, the apostle begins his summary of a section in which various relationships have been discussed. So he's, he's talked about citizens and the emperor He's talked about slaves and masters. He's talked about husbands and wives. And in this section, the discussion is mostly about submission. And it's in the context of Jesus' quiet submission before his detractors and those who arrested him and then crucified him. Nowhere in this section, nowhere from, from 1 Peter uh, 2.13 all the way through 3.7... Does Peter talk about rights, about the believer's rights, the husband's rights, or the wife's rights, or the citizen's rights, or the... None of that. He, in fact, in fact, nowhere in the New Testament do you find where, where we're told to stand up for ourselves. It's just not there. Quite different from our culture and our society. So at the same time, we're not told to stand up for ourselves. We're told to just trust God. We are told absolutely to stand up for those um, in our body and for the oppressed in the world. And it's, it's just like we're told to never brag about ourselves. The scripture says, let another man praise you, not your own lips. But then 
He also, at the same time, in the New Testament, we also see the Apostle Paul talking about Timothy. I have no one like him. He's just so great. He cares for people's needs like nobody else. He cares about you more than he cares about himself. It's like the Lord knows what we need. He also knows the deceitfulness of pride. And so if I start bragging about myself, Pride is going to be... Look, pride is not sometimes destructive. Pride is destructive, period. And so the Lord does everything He can to keep us from from being proud and yet to to, to meet those needs that we have for affirmation. It's just a great thing when people say, I really appreciate you. Well, especially for those who have that particular love language, if you know about the love languages. Uh, In verse 8... There's no verb in the Greek. I mean, it's just finally, all unity, sympathy, love, tender heart, humble mind. That's the Greek. That's the way it would be translated if it were a straight translation. Clearly, uh, and that word finally just takes in all of those relationships that he's been discussing. Uh, He's expressing ways that God expects believers to behave toward one another in the covenant community. This is not how you live in the world. This is how you treat one another. How one member interacts with other believers in the church has a huge impact on evangelism. In our individualistic society, a lot of people might be tempted to, to say when they're witnessing to others, well, the church is messed up. But God's always got your back. Look, both of those things are true. The church is messed up. And God always has your back. But that is not a good way to witness. Because this witness comes through the church. It's the way God designed it. The gospel goes forth from Grace Community Church and every Bible-believing church that preaches the gospel. That's how it happens. And we get to be representatives of Christ, but we're also representatives of the church. And when we're always, when you're going around bad mouth in your church, it's not going to be much evangelism happening. If it is, it's going to be, it's going to be shallow. You study everything about Charles Finney, who was built up to be this great hero. I think he was a heretic. Did I mention this recently? I think I may have said this recently. That's where I go when I'm off script to Charles Finney, the heretic. Talking about this, the, the, the ungodly uh, doctrine of Christ imputation of righteousness, or the, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to sinners. That's our only hope. But Charles Finney would go into, into cities and he didn't get churches, he didn't care about churches. And he would have these fiery sermons, and, and hundreds and thousands of people would come to Christ. And almost all of them fell away eventually. He was jealous of those who had a far different kind of evangelism at the end because he said so many of the converts at my meetings were were false professions. Look, when it's your convert, it's not likely to stick. It's got to be the Lord's convert. And one of the ways that he works is through the unity that happens in the church. And the only way the church stays unified is if we stay humble. Or when the Lord makes us humble, we submit to that. So, unity of mind, unity, not uniformity. 
It'd be easier if we all pulled for the same teams, we all had the same political views, and we shopped at the same places. We don't want to all eat at the same restaurants because we don't want to have to wait, you know. But, but look, those things are just not... We, we're, we're different people, and that's okay. God's brought us together. As I said a few weeks ago, we celebrate Christ. We're not our differences. We are who we are in Christ. Our unity is in Jesus. Sympathy. It's hard to be sympathetic when the world would be a better place if people would just think and act like you. I know that's true. Brotherly love, a tender heart, humble mind. Would you say these qualities, these, these attitudes, these character traits reflect you and your thinking and your interaction with other members of this body this past week? With all the members of this body this past week? I would think that probably a lot of you might say, yes, that's the case. What's the big deal about this and outreach? The world is watching. If there's conflict at a church, do people hear about it? Yeah, they do. Does it impact the way they think about Jesus? Yeah, it does. Humility. In verse 8, refers to humility within the church. Verse 9 tells us how to interact with those who don't believe the gospel. And in fact, some who are even hostile toward the gospel. It's already been mentioned that Peter's readers were suffering due to their faith. So how were they to respond? In humility. Now we... Well... I want to say we tend to value humility, but we really don't. It, it, it was scorned in the first century. If you were humble, you were a pushover. You didn't stand up for anything. You didn't care about anything. You were just, you were weak and ineffective. And yet believers were called to take, a ver to take verbal abuse without reacting in kind. So when you think about it, you want to say, yes, humility is valued in our land, but really? Not really. The phony humility that I referenced earlier is increasingly replaced with taking a strong stand for a cause which may or may not be laced with phony humility. If you don't have a cause, what's wrong with you? If you're not standing up for this, what's wrong with you? If you're not, if you're not taking your stand on this thing or that thing, or if you have views about the world that are different from someone else's cause, let me ask you this. Do you typically hear, hey, look, what's, what's important to me doesn't have to be important to you. What's right for me is not necessarily right for you. And I'm cool with that. Is that what you hear today? Not likely. More than likely you hear, what's wrong with you? When someone calls you an idealist or a racist or a real, religious fanatic or any number of other pejorative terms, what is your typical response? Most likely, it's to defend yourself and to try to out-argue your opponent. That's the way we do life in the U.S., right? Somebody says something, you don't agree with it, you just come at them. Well, that's crazy. Let me tell you why. God says, be humble. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. 
But on the contrary, bless. You know, like Trump and the press were blessing each other this past week, you know? <laughs> bless. For to this you were called. I should say President Trump. Just like I should have said President Obama. But look, this animosity is not to be a part of who we are. We're called to be different. And you know what? That, that's not easy. Humility in the face of attack is disarming. Especially when you have strength. When you have moral, physical, intellectual strength. And you stay humble in the face of attack. That's disarming. A soft answer turns away wrath, Proverbs 15, 1 tells us. But we're not inclined to a soft answer when our feathers are ruffled. <coughs> what aggravated you this past week? And where did it happen? Was it in the car on the highway, at a school meeting, in your neighborhood, a parking lot? Or was it when you were checking out the news? What was it that aggravated you? Something did. I'm surprised at how many times I find myself highly frustrated about something that happened or something that was said. Really? Really, Brad? Really, this is who you are? Really, child of God? That's who we're called to be? Look, I know that to maintain a civil society, we need rules of decorum. And it should be upsetting at some level when those rules are not followed. If we're going to continue to be who we are, we've got to have some civility. But we are rapidly approaching a time where there is no longer civility in our country. And if you respond to people humbly, then that's attractive. It's appealing. As believers who are patient with others, we have... We have opportunity to present Christ to a world that desperately needs someone to show them Jesus and to show them his love for them. Look, you may approach me after the service and say, hey, look, I've got a situation. Talked about them yesterday. I, Alice and I, ours, theirs, we talked about situations. And I might say, you need to do something about that. You just can't let that keep going on like that. I, I know that's the way it is. But this is a good word to all of us. It's not easy, but humility will go a long way in your witness. One more word about humility and evangelism. We begin with a disadvantage. I mean, imagine if you're not a Christian and your friend or your family member keeps pounding you with the gospel. And they're saying, look, if you don't believe like I believe, you're going to hell. Well, they're not saying that, but that's the way you feel. It, it's how you feel that... So, we have to tell the truth. We have to. We're commanded to. But when you hear your lost relative or friend constantly becoming angry with you for sharing the gospel, it's best not to say, hey, I just care about you, okay? Or, or this, this road that you're on leads to destruction. What does the scripture say? Do not repay evil for evil or 
evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. The winsome appeal of humility. Second, the surprising attractiveness of righteousness. Now, I'm going to just start immediately tearing this down right as I, I put it up there. Uh, many of the, uh, of, the, of the believers to whom Peter was writing were Gentiles. They had been known actually, before they were Christians, they were known as righteous Gentiles. Because of the pagan culture of the day and the debauchery of the day, there were a lot of people who were attracted to Judaism and, and life in the synagogue. They said, surely, surely there has to be more to life than this unrestrained pleasure of contemporary Rome. And they were attracted to the law, the Old Testament law. And they converted. And, and, and I keep saying this over and over today. I'm going to say it again later. This, is not an e this was not an easy thing to do, especially for the men to convert to Judaism. But they did because they said there's something there that I and missing. Interestingly enough, the Old Testament law was pointing to Jesus, but it was Gentiles who believed that far more readily than Jews. And so many of them converted to Christianity. It was actually a ready-made group of people to convert in the first century when the gospel went forward. So the same is true in our, our day. It, righteousness is attractive to some people, even if they seem to be attacking it on the outside. But not everyone is attracted to righteousness. Why wouldn't they be? I mean, you would think that people would say, I, I appreciate that order, I appreciate that, that morality and that consistency of life. But look, if, if you're living a debauched life and, and, and someone close to you is living this very moral life, that's convicting. And when they refuse to do something that, that you want to do, you want to say, hey, let's go to this party. And they're like, nah, it's really, that's just not my scene. It's not, I, I, I don't need to be doing that. That uh, is convicting. And, and if you're living this life that, that you have tried you have tried to turn around, but it eludes you in spite of your best efforts. Look, the, the life of a, of a righteous person is not only convicting, it can almost feel like condemnation. So this point may be a little misleading, as in, hey, if you live righteously, people will flock to you and convert in droves. Not so, not necessarily so, and probably not so. A righteous life makes a lot of people mad for all the right reasons. Deep down, they know that a righteous lifestyle is God's design for humanity. And so they're either attracted or, or repelled. They're convicted or convicted in one way or the other that leads to... Uh, uh, a response in one way or the other. Peter said, if you're going to suffer, better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So, for the last time, living this life ain't easy. It's another sermon altogether. Living the Christian life, it's not easy. But, just know 
that when you do live righteously as God has called you to live, it's attractive. Even when it seems like all you get for your effort is trouble on top of trouble. People are noticing and they are attracted. Look, in the first three centuries, Christianity was attacked, especially after Nero in the mid-60s. He started this systematic persecution of believers, and you know the drill. You know know what happened. If they refused to say uh, Caesar is Lord, they were dragged uh, into trial and immediately convicted and very quickly uh, executed. Oftentimes it was, just imagine... Your, your whole family, your children, they let them go first. Wild dogs or, or lions are set upon them. And then your wife and then you. Or they were crucified. And Tertullian, late in the second century, early third century, Tertullian, who was a theologian in, in North Africa and Carthage, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because every time someone would die, for living righteously in the view of, of the world. They died for the gospel because they followed Jesus as Lord. But the world said, oh, those goody goodies, uh, those arrogant, self-righteous people. Uh, every time someone died, there were like two or three that would sprout up in their place. And so the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When you suffer well, people notice and they're attracted to Jesus. Yesterday, I saw a link to a Gospel Coalition article, and some of you probably saw it, about the execution of Lady Jane Grey, who was Queen of England in the 16th century for about nine days uh, before being arrested by Queen Mary, who would later come to be known as Bloody Mary. Uh, Lady Jane was a believer. And a few days before her execution at 19 years of age. Think about this. At 19 years of age. And how poignant this is for me today. She wrote to her 14 year old sister Catherine. Here's what she said. Live to die. That by death you may enter into eternal life. And then enjoy the life that Christ has gained for you by his death. That's the gospel right there. Jesus died for you and because of his death, when you embrace it, when you repent and believe, you have eternal life. And then this, don't think that just because you are now young, your life will be long. Because young and old, as God wills. If you have a desire... To reach others for Jesus. Give attention to the winsome appeal of humility. To the surprising attractiveness of righteous living. And of course to the effective witnessing tool of dialogue. Look, our purpose statement at Grace. Exalt the Lord. Establish believers. Engage the world with the gospel. Engage the world with the gospel. Dialogue with the world. It's intentional language. Uh, Let me think about this point by beginning with this. What is your favorite subject to talk about? What do you know 
the most about more than anything else, and it's the thing that you really love talking about. If I didn't know anything about that, and I said, please tell me, I'm very interested, I would like to know, but I, I'd like to learn, but I don't know anything, what would you do? You'd tell me, right? You'd be able to give me all kinds of information, and if I'm an eager listener and learner, then you're all the more excited to tell me. So, how would you be able to answer if somebody said, why, what is it that's so different about you? Tell me about this gospel. I don't know anything. I hear that word gospel. What does that mean? 1 Peter 3.15 is a favorite verse for those who find great value in apologetics for evangelism. That is, an argument for or a defense of Christianity. There's certainly application here, but look, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 was not written so that we might find somebody to debate at a college forum somewhere about we, that we could find an atheist to debate. And, you know, let's talk about evolution or creation. That's not what that's about. It's, it's saying, look, when, when people come at you and they say, what is it that makes you so different? And, and a lot of times the question is going to be, more along the lines of, why are you such a freak? I mean, don't you know that people are sick and tired of your righteous, self arrogant, self-righteous, arrogant ways? What is it about you that's so different? What is it about that you believe? Look at the verse. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Right there, that's already. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I, I just wondered <laughs> if Lady Jane thought about 1 Peter as she awaited the execution, knowing that her hope was not in a stay of execution, a reprieve. But that her hope was in eternity. And she was telling her 14-year-old sister, be ready. You don't know how long you have. It's one of our great problems in America. We think we've got forever. And we don't. Those of you, medical field, pharmacists, I saw Leanne. You know. Life is unpredictable. Our hope is not in this world. And you should never offer anyone temporal hope to those who see some point of life in light in you. Point them to the only existence that is truly good and beautiful. Eternal life for those who repent of their sins and trust that Jesus died for them. The proclamation of the gospel in the New Testament is surprisingly responsive. It is not always proactive. It's look for opportunities to share Christ whenever it comes in. When someone asks you about it, share Jesus. Last week we learned that if people are going to be saved, we have to take the message of salvation to them. Today's text indicates that we should be ready to share the gospel if and when someone asks us about our faith. Look, I want to follow up on something I said last week that was off the top. It was off, it was off script. I didn't have it planned to say, but I, but I said it. If you've been witnessing to someone for a long time, just stop. 
don't witness anymore. Two people immediately almost said, that was such a relief to me for you to say that because I don't know what to do. I have witnessed and witnessed and I feel responsible for other people. Look, if you have frequently shared the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus, a friend or a family member, or if you have offered that counsel that I mentioned earlier, the road that you were on leads to destruction. I applaud you. It is not easy to tell somebody who believes differently than you or someone that you know is heading for destruction. It's not easy because it's easier just to keep the peace for a lot of us and and just not say anything. So I applaud you. But if your friends or loved ones have begun to avoid you and, and tell you that they're not interested before you even speak. It's probably best that you give them space. Look, I, 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 get, I get it sometimes. If somebody is addicted to drugs or there's just some major issue in life, you've got to just keep at it and get people around to help and all of that. But in the context of sharing the gospel or saying, I don't like this life that you're, that you're living when you repeatedly tell someone something they don't want to hear, you're, you're not even aware of this, but you know what you're doing? You're doing masonry work. You're, 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 you're laying the brick, you know, you're, and you're building a wall. You don't realize it, but, but you're building a wall. If you've been telling someone how wrong they are for years, and again, that's not your heart, that's not your point, but that's the way it comes across. That's the way you're making them feel. If you've been doing that forever, when they begin to see the light, they may resist it because they've gotten in that habit of doing that. And they've had their defenses up for so long. It's not just you that's building that wall. They're building it too as hard and fast as they can. I'm not, I don't want to hear it from you anymore. Think of how difficult it would be for them to say at that point, you know what? When they start to see the light, you were right all along. How silly of me not to have listened to you all those years. Look, when you will back off of that, and, 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 and I've learned this the hard way. I, I, it's not that I'm telling you something that, that I've known all along. I've learned this the hard way, but when you will back off, and not, not move away from that person, but find points of connection. And wherever you can, enjoy communion with that person. And just don't bring up the issues that divide you. That wall will start to come down sometimes. Not always. Because the, the very fact, when the wall comes down, they'll look and say, Oh, wait a minute, Jesus is in you and I don't want anything to do with Jesus. So it's... It could be a lost cause anyway, but do your best to make it easy for a person to come to you and say, I was wrong, I need help. That goes in all areas of life, all relationships. <clears throat> if someone comes to you and says, I was wrong, I'm sorry, and you've been hurt deeply, the temptation is to say, yeah, you did. You hurt me really badly. And just, rub, just say, thank you for saying that. It's done. Forgiven. I love you. I always have. Now let's move forward. 
Well, I said I was going to quit saying it, but I'll say it again. That's not easy to do. Whether it's someone you've known forever or someone you've known for two months, dialogue about the gospel is preferable to the person feeling like they're getting a canned presentation or a lecture about God. And again, not your intent. Everything about your, your heart is good, but it, that's just the way it feels to them. As we said last week, the gospel is simple, but the implications are profound. So people may have complex questions about the gospel. And dialogue with them. And don't feel like everything rides on this one conversation. If God didn't do things in spite of us, nothing would be done. Good. We make a mess of things all the time, but God cleans it up. And He knows your heart. He loves your heart. He loves your heart for other people. Find ways to interact at this level. And you may be much further down the road in evangelism than you ever thought possible. So here is the ultimate application for today's message. Buy this book, Core Christianity by Michael Horton. We're doing it at our men's... uh, Breakfast yesterday, we were talking about chapter 4. We studied chapter 4, God Speaks. It's just a great help for understanding how God speaks to those who believe. Primarily, He speaks to us through His Word. So here's the reason I'm suggesting this. Because this is an application of 1 Peter 3.15. Be ready always to give a defense of of your hope that you have, the hope that you have in Christ for anyone who asks you. This book will help you sort it all out. Look, there's a lot of stuff in here. Maybe I shouldn't say a lot, but there's some stuff that'll be over your head. He's going along, simple, simple, simple. And then it's like uh, Athanasius or, you know, uh, Neophystites, uh, Neophysticism. I think I said that right. It's just, it's all over the place. He's Just little patches here or there, but there's so much that you can't understand. Find somebody to to, to read this with, to study this with. Maybe your spouse, maybe your parents, other friends, home group friends. Find a way to understand more about your relationship with God and the hope that lies within you. And I'm serious. That is the full application. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, we recognize that anything good in us comes from above. And we We want desperately other people to experience what we have experienced or to know what we know because of the Holy Spirit, not because of our arrogance or pride. Although we can surely all be in that place just in a heartbeat. But Lord, our desire is for our loved ones to come for you. And it is so much harder to remain silent sometimes than it is to share a good word about you. Lord, our friends, our family, they, they, they know how we feel. 
They know our desire for them. Help them to know how deeply we love them and help us to be humble and righteous, but not self-righteous. And help us to be willing to dialogue. We pray for opportunities to share Jesus. Just early in the week, two people texted and said, I I was able to share the gospel. Thank you for that, Lord. For those who heard, for those who read a beautifully written letter. May the gospel find fertile soil. And Lord, may we love you with all of our hearts and may that love overflow to other people. Forgive us for our anger towards other people for such unimportant things. They, they, they feel very important in our culture, but really, ultimately, it's down to whether we believe or not. So, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. And may Jesus shine through us, in whose name we pray. Amen. Good morning comes from 2 Corinthians 13, verses 11 through 14. And Paul's final greetings to the Corinthians. Be joyful, grow to maturity, encourage each other, live in harmony and peace. Then the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet each other with Christian love. All of God's people here send you their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all of God's people said, Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.